Look at your neighbor and say, Happy sunshine. (laughs) It doesn't take very long to look around you, and especially looking to Washington, D.C. We have a new president, and he's trying to get a new cabinet ready and all that. And it's all going so swimmingly smooth, amen? We're in a mess. This country's in a mess. People in this country are in a mess. There's just a lot of messes going on. It seems like, how are they going to deal with the enormous debt that we have? Uh, the very delicate dealings with foreign leaders. Do we handle those right? Do we not handle them right? Um, the drug trafficking that we that we still have day to day, every day, along the borders, Mexico, the moral crisis, the mounting moral crisis of how you can how a, two people can look at an unborn baby in the womb of a mother, and one say it's not a life, and the other one say it is. How can you do that? And if it's not a life, why do you harvest the pieces of it when you kill it? And when you kill it, why do you call it kill it? <laughs> That's a moral dilemma, isn't it? The homosexual movement. It's a moral dilemma. So we have to end the violence in our streets. The, the street violence is going on. It's just amazing to me. In fact, they arrested some in Washington, D.C. during the inauguration when they were uh, pillaging in the streets. And now they're upset because they got arrested. But not only that they got arrested, but they're having to pay a fine for it or maybe go to prison for it. They didn't think that was going to happen. Whoever gave them the money to go riot didn't tell them about the consequences of it. See, there's always consequences, isn't there, for choices you make, good or bad. I used to tell my boys that every day when I let them out of school. Make good choices because... Good and bad. Something's going to happen if you don't. And so uh, I'd ask them in the afternoon, how was your How was your day? Bone, did you make good choices today? Yes. And they probably didn't, but, you know, they lied to me. It's all right. I knew better. But, you know, it, it's like a, it's like an elder that prays the same prayer around the table up here. You know, everybody goes, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> Mouth of prayer. That's the way my boys were with stuff I would say to them. That's okay. That meant it was sticking in there somewhere. Well, we come fast, or back, we backtrack 2,500 years or so or more to Nehemiah. Guess what? Nehemiah is facing the same problems that we're facing our nation today. He runs into opposition the moment that he sets his heart to obey the Lord and what God had commanded him to do. He was supposed to go and rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. In Ephesians 6, Paul describes this in verse 12, uh, part of our memory verse. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Paul reminds us. And he goes on to remind us that, but against the world powers of darkness. See, most of us could do fairly well if it was a hand-to-hand combat. I mean, we may lose, but we at least make that guy wish he didn't come back. This one we can't. We can't physically fight this one. This was a spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies above us. 
the forces of evil and the forces of good fighting for our souls. And so these enemies, a lot of them are found in the book of Nehemiah. And guess what? You and I still find them today. In 2017, in Jinx America, here they are. You know, they're conf- these enemies are invisible. But they hate law and order and justice and peace. Uh, Satan loves to mangle and trap and destroy and murder. He lives to oppose the work of God, especially God's work that's creating harmony and beauty and love and respect. We're always battling something, always battling some force within us or from without us. Here in Nehemiah, doing that. The devil has two main working uh, methods that he uses. And I hope that you will bear strongly in mind because of these things that I'm going to mention to you because they exist today. The first one, the devil comes, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he comes like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the key word there is fear. The key tool, the key method he uses is fear. His greatest fear point is death. Because we've never experienced death. And so if he can get us afraid to die, then we're not going to rush our way to heaven. You see what I'm saying? But I love the way that God does what he does. And a lot of times at the end of life, I've seen it, some of you have seen it. That person that's dying is it believes, they get an impression that they're not going to make it to heaven because of some sin that they've either committed in their past or... For whatever reason. And it just, you know, it just kind of blows your mind. But that's Satan. And then when I encourage him just to pray that prayer of faith in 1 John 1 9, that he, if we'll confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They've prayed that prayer, and then I ask them to squeeze my hand when they're done, when they've given that all to the Lord, and they do, and well, there's tears running down their face. And most of them don't last much longer. But they've taken care of the fear factor. You hear about people right before they'll die, they'll, they'll, they'll say of their loved ones right before they die, you know, I saw Grandma or I saw Uncle Fred or whatever. Because you see, God lets us sometimes see on the other side just enough to overcome the fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yet Satan, that's one of Satan's greatest tools. You know, a lion is a very dangerous and powerful animal. The most strongest bone that we have in our body is our thigh bone. His, his jaws will snap right through that bone. There's nothing to that bone. It's the biggest, strongest that we've got. And Satan can tear that to pieces. Uh, his paw can smash a human skull like an eggshell. He can pow, put that thing and you're no longer with us. So strength is what this verse is giving us. And the devil has strength. Don't believe that he doesn't. But our God has more strength. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Amen? The second thing that he uses is found in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, which says, <clears throat> the scripture says, he masquerades as an angel of light. So he goes from fear to flattery, (laughs) to flattery. Then he begins to heap 
uh, accolades upon you and how wonderful you are and how blessed you are and how enticing you are and promising these unbelievable things in your life. Boy, if you'll just, if you'll just remember if Jesus met him in the wilderness. He said, if you'll just throw yourself down from here, God will not let you. He'll send his angels to not let you dash on the rocks. Well, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. How are you going to give something to somebody that already has it? <laughs> He's not only got the king, the keys to this kingdom, but to the other one as well. So flattery. Fear or flattery. Both can lead to destruction. Ruin will begin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. We are prepared. One of the things that amazes me when people say, how does Jinx High School football win so much? Preparation. I'll ask Bryant before the game, how are we looking, coach? He goes, well, sometimes he just smiles and raises his eyebrows, which means we're in for a tough game tonight. Then sometimes he'll look at me and go, uh, shouldn't be a bit, shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be a tough game. That means they're not very good. And it usually proves right. <coughs> in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, following a series of attacks and threats against him in an effort to intimidate him, these enemies of Nehemiah suddenly shift gears. They change their strategy. Suddenly they resort to friendliness and persuasion. Look at verse 1. When, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arab and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Go down? Why should... Work stop while I leave it and go down to you. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. See, they could not stop the work of building by threat and attack, so they switched their tactic. You'll experience that when you try to correct what's wrong. Many people today falter in, their, in developing their walk with God stronger because they've listened to the advice of their friends who didn't give them good advice. You need to seek wise counsel, the Bible teaches us. We must check everything that's taught us or given to us. Check it by the Word of God. Make sure it stacks up to the Word and the wisdom of God. You know, Nehemiah, I think it's interesting, they wanted to come down to the plain of, oh no. Well, that was, that's what he told them. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. They ain't coming down there. Because see, they were scheming to harm me, he says. And then he says... I am carrying on a great project. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? See, that's a great answer. We need especially to see the reasons he gives this. Because on the surface, it sounds pretty brusque and blunt. Nehemiah wasn't very kind when he said this. But he sees through their scheme and he refuses to go, even though... Four times they kept coming back and asking him to come to Ono. And he kept saying, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. He wasn't going. 
And you and I will experience continuing pressure from people that we least expected to change our mind and to go along with the status quo and not change a thing. In your life, you need to change things. As you grow older in age and deeper in God, you're going to have to change things in your life. You don't like it. Most people don't like change. I don't like change. You don't like change? No, nobody likes change. But you're going to have to do it. I'll guarantee you that Bryant Caleb is not coaching cornerbacks the same way he did 10 years ago. Bet you he's not. I bet you you're not doing things the way you used to do five years ago. How many of you have a microwave? Let me see your hands. Throw them out. Can't use those anymore. <coughs> oh, really? How many have a washing machine? Throw it out. Can't use it anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, you have a shower head that massages you while you take a shower. You can't throw it out. You can't use it anymore. Hot water, what's that all about? We had to replace a hot water tank not long ago. I know what hot water is about. Because <laughs> when you turn the hot water thing on, it's supposed to bring hot water. Amen. Well, there was more than hot water coming, and it wasn't hot. I didn't know ice actually flowed out of shower heads, but they do. But I love, I love Nehemiah's persistence in his refusal. Here's the reason why he said, he said I'm going to a great work. I'm do, I am doing a great work. I have a great calling. God has committed a tremendous project to me, and if I leave it, it will be threatened. One of the most helpful things that we can do to resist temptation is to remember that God has called us to a great task. What is your task? It's a great one. It's a great task. Don't forget it. You're involved in it. You're supposed to be involved in it. Nobody else is supposed to be involved in it, but you're involved in it. Now, you might have other people helping you, but you know, initially you've got the call. You get out and get the job done. <coughs> All of us have that special call upon us. And you see, the task is to model a different lifestyle so that those who are being ruined by wrongful practices will see something that offers them hope and deliverance. We need to learn to live our lives so that other people respond to Christ by watching us live for Christ. You know, there's, there's certain things that I just choose not to participate in. Why? For two reasons. One is I don't really need it, personally, because it can foul me up. Secondly, I don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody else. So I just choose not to do it. That's my right to do. In fact, that's my spiritual right to do. Because I'm not really worried about it. Because whatever this world has to offer me can't be better than what heaven has to offer me. And I would just as soon not miss heaven just so I could participate in something down here. That's it's fleeting and not going to last anyway. Okay? So God has called you to a great work. Well, I can't define that work. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. I read a story about a missionary in China, a very capable young man who did a great job as a linguist and a diplomat in his work for the Lord. His abilities were outstanding. One of the American companies in China tried to hire him. They offered him an attractive job with a salary to match, but he turned them down. He told them that God had sent him to China as a missionary, and that was what he was going to do. He thought that, that would end the matter and that they'd leave him alone, but instead they came back with a better offer and an increase in money. 
He turned that down too. But again, they came back doubling the salary that they had originally been proposing to him. And finally he said to them, it's not your salary that's too little. It's the job that's too small. That's what we've got to understand. It doesn't matter what you do to make a living to to draw a salary. What matters is how I'm living for God. Because that's all that's going to matter in the end. It's not how much money you accumulate. It's not how much money you make. It's not how powerful or prestigious you got. That's our current president's biggest problem is himself. Probably happens to most guys in his position. When you get into positions of leadership where everybody's saying yes to you, pretty soon you don't, you don't really, you're not balanced. You're out of balance. Dr. F.B. Meyer, a great Bible teacher, said, Oh, the children of, great, uh, of the great king, let us pray that we may know the grandeur of our position before him, the high calling with which he has been called, the vast responsibilities with which we are entrusted, the great work of cooperating with God in erecting the city of God. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, called to sit with Christ in the heavenlies, risen, ascended, crowned in him, sitting with Christ far above all principality and power. How can we go down? Down to the world that rejected him. Down to the level of the first Adam from which at so great cost we have been raised. Down to the quarry from which we were hewn in the hole of the pit which we were digged. No, it cannot be. You should never go back. Always move forward. We've all got a past we just soon forget. But thank God He's providing a day-to-day future for us that's blessed. We need to live that way. Live that calling. When the enemy cannot accomplish his purpose by offering peace and friendship, then guess what? Switches back to his original tactic of threats and danger. Look at verse 5. <coughs> then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message. Uh, come down to and confer. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, the, the, and Geshem, the Arab, says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have been appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. So they're, they're trying to twist his arm. It's kind of like when somebody offers you a piece of cake and you go, oh, I shouldn't. And then you act like somebody's twisting your arm. Oh, okay, I will. Oh, okay, okay. If you, if you insist. They're trying to twist his arm. And again, he's understands the trap that they're laying for him and he won't go. He resists it. And we need to be careful ourselves. But but look at the letter they sent. It was an anonymous letter. Open letter. Preachers get some of those. Those are fun. David will attest to that. I've gotten plenty of those over the years. There's nobody going to sign the letter. But boy, it's a scathing letter. I bet coaches get some of that too, don't you, Brian? Or emails now, right? <laughs> It'd be emails now as opposed to... But see, they don't want to send you an email because you can trace back who it was. So, you know, we get these letters. And, and the letter tells us how worthless we are. How, how could God use us to do His work? To which I hardly agree. <laughs> but, what do you do with that letter? Well, you kind of throw it away because... You have, it has no authority with it because they wouldn't even put their name on it. 
so why am I listening to that? Same thing in our life with our friends or our non-friends or whoever it is that's trying to feed advice to you. Be very careful what you hear and what you begin to practice in your life. I read the story of a preacher who received some of those letters and uh, one day he was a, uh, he said he, was, he heard a man who was addressing an audience and someone had sent him a piece of paper and had the word fool written on it. So he said to the audience, I have received many unsigned messages in the past, but this is the first time I've ever received one from a man who signed his name but wrote no message. <laughs> well, we see that all the time. But, but look at this thing. It was unsealed. So in other words, it was designed for anybody who got that letter to read it. You know, curiosity will make you open the letter and read it. In verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. And that's the way to respond to such things. Just, just a flat denial. I, I deny that. That does not what's going on. There's no attempt to disprove the accusation. He just says it's a lie. It's not truth. Not going not to mess with it. And then look what he says in verse 9. They are all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not, uh, will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. <coughs> their tactic and the tactics or the strategy that they were using were to get the people to think that Nehemiah had some hidden motive. He was doing this for his own glory. And that's the hardest part of leaders in leadership is to convince people that I'm just like you. But somebody's got to move the ball. Somebody's got to push the ball. Somebody has got to do that. And so rather than criticize, let's get behind them and push the ball. If you believe that ball is going in the right place, then you ought to get behind them and start pushing that ball. Don't criticize. Don't lay down in front of the ball. Tennessee just passed a law that if you stand in the highway and block traffic, they can run over you. I think that's a great law. I, you know, I just, what, what mind says I'm going to stand out on a freeway and stop traffic? Oh, I, I don't think so. <clears throat> they must be paying them a lot of money to do that. But the enemy switches his tactics. He reverts to deception. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mahetabel, who was shut up in his, at his house. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. See, this word comes in the form of a prophecy. But this man is the false prophet. He claims to have hidden, perhaps, occultic knowledge. He is suggested by his word and by this word that he was shut up in his house. That doesn't mean that he was sick. It means that he was some in some religious reason or from some religious reason he was secluding himself from people. You see a lot of that people who get these get these thoughts and these things. Oh man, they're oh yeah, oh yeah. God's told me to yeah, oh yeah. I was listening to David. Uh, no. Um, oh goodness. Ah. Kenneth Copeland and De Jesse Duplantis. I was listening to those two one day. Justify, 
to justify why they fly on a private jet that they own over a commercial jet. Here's what the bottom line was. They said, we're men of God who are about an important mission, and that is to spread the word of God to the masses. And so we need this plane to get us as quickly as we can from place to place to share the gospel. I thought, back up a minute. Let me pull that horse back just a minute. Wouldn't it be better for me to be in the masses on a private, on a commercial jet where I can share the Word of God with everybody I'm sitting around? Hmm. Doesn't make sense, does it? I was so disappointed when I heard that. There's no justification for a preacher flying in a $65 million plane. I don't care what it is. How much, how much ministry can you do with $65 million? Yeah. I mean, I could take care of Bryant right now. I'd just set Bryant up. He looks like a coach of the year, man. He, could, he wouldn't have to coach another day. He'd just walk out there and look like he's coaching. You think Corey's got a nice-looking ride now? Mm-mm-mm. Wait to find $65 million. I'll fix him up. Boy, go on and on and on, huh? Some people are out to get you. They're going to kill you. Nehemiah certainly believes that. Come on up here. We'll go into the temple and shut the doors. They will not dare attack you there. Oh, really? You've got your boys hiding behind the door. So Nehemiah says in verse 11, But I said, should, I, should a man like me run away, or should one like me go into the temple and save his life? I will not go. In verse 12 and 13, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would, that would give them uh, and give me a bad <clears throat> name so that they could discredit me. You, once you're discredited, you can. It's it's hard to get that back. You can, but it's hard to get it back. So live a life of integrity, and you'll never have to face that. Live a life of integrity. We must be aware of, of this kind of attack in our lives today. Don't take anyone's advice just because they're friendly to you. Could be totally wrong advice. Nothing substitutes good advice. For knowledge from the Word of God. Always go to the Word of God to find your to find your answer. Should a man like me run and hide and try to save his life by wrong approaches and unlawful practices? He falls back on his clear consciousness of who he is. He's a believer in the living God in such in such a way needs not resort to trickery to save his life. The New Testament teaches us this way in 1 Thessalonians 2. Walk worthy of God. Walk worthy of God. You're His child. You belong to Him. You are therefore living a different level and on a different level than everybody else because you are God's child. Henry David Thoreau wrote in Walden Pond, If if I seem not to keep step with others, it's because I'm listening to another drumbeat. You and I must march to the beat of a different drummer. Don't listen to what the world's telling you to do. Do what God's telling you to do in your heart. What He's prompting you to do in your heart. 
Look down at verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalad, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also that prophetess uh, Noadiah. We are not told what she did or said, but she is evidently one of the false prophets uh, in this time. And the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Nehemiah realizes, and he relies upon the invisible hand of God and realizes that God is with him, and he's looking and seeking and hoping for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You and I can operate in no less way than that. Look at verse 15 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations saw it, our enemies lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They knew it. They knew that God was doing it. You see, if God is going to, if these chairs are going to be full every Sunday, God's going to have to do it, but He's going to have to do it through us. If we're going to give enough money to sustain our ministry here and to sustain our missions here, then it's going to, God's going to do it, but He's going to do it through you and through me. If somebody's going to get a, a food basket and they're going to need that they need to eat, they're going to find that from you and from me. What are we getting it for? What are we doing it for? Why are we involved in? Are we involved in? Are we just sitting back waiting for somebody else to do it? Well, look around you. How many chairs are empty? There's a lot of them. Wonder where they are today. Oh, beats me. Just one of them Sundays they didn't want to come to church. Could be. Could be. Could be the lousy preacher you got. That's the other one. I got you. Some would say amen to that. Hopefully not out loud. But even their enemies had to admit that God was at work in these people's lives. How do you do that whole project in fifty two days? Except they are hand in hand, arm in arm, getting it done. When our enemies heard about this, they lost their self-confidence, Nehemiah says. And they realized that they were battling against God Himself. What a great picture. What a great picture. You can't, your enemies can't get to you if they realize that God's leading you. They just can't get to you. The enemies are still tough. And in the closing verses of this chapter, they continue their strategy of opposition. Look at verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath, uh, were, were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law of uh, Shechaniah, son of Arai, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. That's a simple say. It just simply says that Tobiah had intermarried with the Israelites, and so he thought he had some leverage. All it is is pure gossip. Look at verse 19. Moreover, they kept reporting to me this, his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. The truth that this conveys to us is that the devil never quits. He will not leave you alone till you die and leave this world. And you better have your pathway set before you die. That's it. And that's his reward in full. You know, I've lived 61 years. be 62 in May. I used to be a really old person. Now, not so much. Ralph said a young guy came to eat breakfast with me I could be it 
Actually, Corey would be the young guy. On to chapter 7. Longest chapter in the book of Nehemiah. I'm not reading it like we've been doing. We're just going to take some highlights, so stay with me. Buckle, buckle up. Here we go. Verses 1 through 3. After the wall had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, To the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. You see, even though the wall was not finished, Nehemiah did not cease taking precautions. He said, don't open them until the sun is hot. That would preclude any possible surprise attack while the folks were sleeping. He appointed residents to stand guard at vulnerable points on the city wall. And what that teaches us is, don't let down your guard. I've seen many of a Christian, many of a preacher fall to moral lapse because they let down their guard. They thought they were strong and they, they, they would be able to stand up under that. You know people have done that themselves. Don't let down your guard. Don't stop playing the game. I think the reason Atlanta Falcons lost, my own opinion, is they played not to lose and didn't play to win. New England came to play to win. That's how, they, that's how you beat somebody, is you come to play to win. So whatever it takes, you're going to win. Whoever has to sacrifice will sacrifice. Whoever will play harder will play harder. In the church, there's no different. Well, what can I do, preacher? You can pray. Well, I don't know how to pray. Then you need to learn how to pray. I've said to you that we'll be doing some great things for God when we've got people walking up here during the service and falling on their knees to that cross and praying out to God. I'll know we're doing some stuff. But you see, most of us are locked. And as soon as we get to our chair, we're locked. There's this invisible barrier around us that says, don't raise your hands. Don't smile. Don't act like you're enjoying yourself. Just sit there. Act like you're asleep. Nope. Yeah, I guess I am. I tell people, hey, if you're tired on Sunday, come on. Lean forward. We'll think you're praying. You can, you can get a good hour and a half in. Come on. Steve Burnham used to say, man, I like these padded chairs. I put doesn't hurt my head as much to lay it down on, <laughs> on the back of the chair. <coughs> well, the rest of the chapter 7 <coughs> is given over to preserving the purity of the doctrine of God and God is taught and the commitment of the Jews to the cause. It was necessary to ensure that only true Israelites lived within Jerusalem. Look at verse 4 and 5. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not uh, been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return, and this is what I have written there. And so there follows then the next verses, uh, number of verses, names of all the families that came back from Persia to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra some 30 years before Nehemiah. Nehemiah's time. And they were among the ones who helped build the wall. He's not only giving credit to them, but he's recognizing that they will be responsible to carry on when he's gone. You see, you build the church on the backbone of those that have the foundation of the church. And nine times out of ten, it's older people. 
They're going to give the money. They're going to do what they need to do to make sure the church goes. It's time for young people to step up and begin to do the same thing, to follow that lead and to take off the pressure of the older people. Verses 6 through 60, we have a list of families, those who were able to prove their ancestry. The spiritual application of that is that we need to know that we really belong to God. You will never be a successful servant of Christ, uh, nor ever faithfully work for Christ or serve Christ until you are assured that you know Him and you belong to Him. You need to know that in your heart. That I'm His and He's mine. Look at verse 61. The following came up from the towns of Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Kerub, Adon, and uh, Emmer. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. They were therefore not permitted to live in the city, for they had uncertain ancestry. Then he moves on to, the, to another group in verse 63. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hekaz, and Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai and the Giladite and was called by that name, they uh, searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, therefore, ordered them to not eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the, with the Urim and Thummim. Certain ones, even among the priests, were denied the right to minister because they could not prove their ancestry. It's interesting that he mentions Urim and Thummim. These were... Two stones, they mean light and perfection. And the high priest wore on his garment by which he could find, uh, so that he could find the mind of God. No one really knows how those stones worked. Nehemiah says these, these uh, suspect priests were not allowed to minister until a high priest arrives with these stones. It might have referenced what the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 6 was saying that Jesus as the priest after the order of Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. But he had and forever will have the mind of Christ and the mind of God. In the closing verses of the chapter, it gives the number of people who returned to Jerusalem. Then, uh, then there follows the account of a great offering that was taken for the rebuilding of the walls. And finally a note on how the servants of the city were to be settled. As we draw to a close this morning, let's remember the factors that enabled Nehemiah to stand. First, he had a great awareness of the magnitude of the task that God had given him to do. He had a great awareness of that. He'd never, he, did, he didn't forget it. He lived it, walked it, breathed it. He had a ministry to perform, a lifestyle to model, and he never forgot that God had sent him to Jerusalem and that God had his back. Secondly, he never forgot his own identity. He knew who he was. He knew that he belonged to God and that he was part of God's people. Three, he was free from the influence of others. He absolutely refused to listen to, the, to every bit of advice that came along. He refused counsel from those who did not have access to the mind and the wisdom of God. When you need to make a powerful decision in your life, you need to find men or women of God to help you with that decision. Number four, he was careful to put into practice what he knew. He was a very practical man. He set up guards, assigned responsibilities, shared labor, 
and then investigated carefully what was going on. That was the great factor in his success. Then fifth, above all, he prays. He prays. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says to us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Do you want God to direct your life? Then just begin to do those five simple things that we just closed with. Those five things. Be aware of the magnitude of the task that God's given you to do. Don't forget your own identity. Remember to stay free from the influence of others. Be careful to put into practice what you already know to do. And then fifthly, pray. Father, I come to you now in prayer and ask you to move among your folks here and touch just one this morning. May they respond to the calling and your calling in their life. And Father, I just ask that you would move and stir among among your people. Father, I know we're, your word is penetrating when people get up out of their seat and begin to come to the cross to crawl out to you. Father, I thank you for Jesus who gives us hope every day. And Father, if there's somebody here who needs to make a decision, would they today? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Uh, his way with thee, a great song. And uh, would you give God his... His way with you.